Vicki Gardner is going to come forward and read from the text in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, through 11 and then 15 following. This is the story of Jesus riding on a donkey. You might have recognized the tune of our first hymn, but with different words. The focus, though, of the sermon is going to be on the second part of when Jesus is cleansing the temple. As you hear the story, think about Jesus as prophet. Think about him as priest and think about him as king. This is sometimes a part of the life of Christ that we don't really understand or maybe even want to meditate much on, but I'm convinced it's one of the most important ways in which we see Jesus because Jesus is taking his father's glory very seriously and what he does is astonishing. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vicki. From the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning with the first verse. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and some spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Continuing with the fifteenth verse, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Vicki. Father, as we open this passage and see the behavior of our Savior, I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. God, there is so much noise around us, inside us, and we need that work that only you can do. This is for all of us, God, and we need this feeding. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think in order to understand the significance of what happened here, you have to understand what Jesus saw. The first part of the text about the triumphal entry, I read and preached on Palm Sunday. You can hear that sermon if you go back to the Holy Week. But I want us to begin where we left off with Jesus on the donkey. He gets off after being praised as king. Hosanna, Hosanna. And then in verse 11, it says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Without a proper understanding of what the temple looked like, you, you have no idea of really what took place. And so I want to try to set this picture for you the best I can. And then I want to look at why Jesus behaved the way he did and what that means for us today. Mark is teaching us as he writes this gospel over and over again, and we see but don't see, we hear but don't hear. And that was true of the people who were closest to Jesus. It's true of me, and it's true of you, all of us. Especially if we think there's nothing left for us to see. That is a sign of deep deficiency in our sight, our deafness in our ears. Jesus, it says, as Mark records, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, so I want you to picture this. Jesus moves into the temple and he begins to look around. And I want you to think about the penetrating eyes of Jesus, the knowing eyes of Jesus. Jesus is fully man. He is fully God. He sees. But what does he see as he looks around? He sees a desecration of this holy place. He sees a place in which there is incredible dimming of God's glory. He sees a place where there is a rejection of a particular people group, and he's grieving. The temple grounds on the Temple Mount are far greater than you can imagine. If you've never been there, it's, it's vast. It's 30 plus acres. And this temple, Herod's temple, is, is broken into four parts. This temple built and started around 19 BC, wasn't completed until 63, 64 AD. Then it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But in the time of Christ, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. The temple was broken into these four parts. You had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Jews, and then the Holy of Holies. Where Christ is at this moment, when he is looking around, is in the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where anyone from any nation can actually enter in. It's a place that's been set apart for anyone really to come and pray, to draw near to the living God. I'll speak to that more in a minute. But this is where Jesus is standing. And if you aren't careful, you might think it's a small room where there is a little bit of exchange taking place between lenders and those buying and selling animals. The court of the Gentiles was massive. It was three football fields long and 250 yards wide. So think about that. When Jesus enters into the temple and sees this bazaar, he's grieved. And it's massive in terms of the noise, the smell, and the people. 
and all the animals. In 66, the historian Josephus said that perhaps 255,000 lambs were sacrificed. If you multiply 10 by one lamb per person, you begin to see that there's over a couple of million people that could have been entering into this season of Passover. This is not a small room that you might see in some painting about this event. This is a massive, vast area where what you're actually seeing is a collision of the stock market and the county fair. And Jesus is grieved. He looks and he sees. It says he sees everything. As it was already late though, he goes to Bethany with the 12. The crowds are no longer following. They're no longer shouting Hosanna. And I wonder what that night was like for Jesus. What was the conversation like with his father? The next morning, he moves towards the temple again. We know he's hungry because he sees a fig tree. Robbie's going to be preaching on this next week. It's a fascinating text. It's a miracle and a parable together that's really important for us to see. And in the middle of it comes the cleansing of the temple, and they're definitely connected. The central message is about hypocrisy, that something appears one way and is not another. That's what Jesus was constantly detesting, especially in the religious people. And so look forward to that next week as Robbie preaches those two passages about the fig tree. But we're told that he comes into the temple. And most likely in your Bible above it, that the title was probably says, Jesus cleanses the temple. And that sounds like something that's kind of pure and cleansing. The word cleanse actually isn't really in the text. The word actually is he drove out or he began to drive out. That's the exact same word in the Greek that's used for the exorcism of demons. So Jesus enters back into the temple and he's enraged. He has a righteous indignation because of what he's seen. He's cursed the fig tree already and now he moves into the temple. He's in that part called the temple of the Gentiles. And he begins to do what he did. And you see this in the second chapter of John. He begins to flip tables, spread things out, shout. In John's gospel, we see that he makes a cat of nine tails, a, a whip, and begins to pop it, sending people out. We don't know if there was a whip created in this story. We're not told. But Jesus had done this before at the beginning of his ministry. Now he's doing it again near the time he goes to the cross. And it would have been astonishing to witness. People had come to Passover. And this had become a lucrative business for the religious leaders. Every Jewish male over the age of 20 had to pay a temple tax, which was half a shekel. If they brought money that wasn't from that same area, that money had to be transferred. So the money lenders would then apply extortion and suddenly begin to make a lot of money on this exchange. Worse was the cost of the animals. An individual could bring their own animal for sacrifice, but that animal would have to be perfect and pure. The priests would make the decision whether it was or not. So you could bring an animal that you raised, present it to the priest and say, it's not fit, and therefore you have to go ahead and buy another one. The price of these animals was skyrocketing during this time. They had lost their way. The temple was no longer what it was supposed to be. Power and money, greed, those were the things that were consuming the religious leaders. 
It happened small. It had to have. But then gradually it grew and became normalized. And then all of a sudden, this is what Passover looked like. And in order for you to truly go and worship, you would have to purchase whatever they provided. If your item, whatever animal you brought, wasn't perfect. So Jesus, it tells us, flips over the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. That's very important. And the reason it's important is because the poor people were the ones who could only afford the pigeons. And they were being sold for an amount that was way beyond what was necessary. Jesus saw the injustice and it made him mad. He had righteous indignation as he witnessed what was taking place. So Jesus is in a massive area, three football fields long, 250 yards wide, and he single-handedly is delivering that which is evil from a place that is to be holy and sacred. This is powerful. How long did it take? I have no idea. It must have been exhausting for this man, but he had his way. He had his way because what he was witnessing was the desecration of this temple, of this sacred place. The word desecration means to violate the sanctity of something, to treat disrespectively, irreverently, outrageously. He was witnessing that event taking place. And as it did, as that took place, it was because he watched the glory of his father being diminished. Once again, the people of God had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They were, as Paul would say in Romans 1, worshiping the created thing rather than the creator who is forever praised. This was not the way it was supposed to be in Jesus. The king, the prophet, the priest had had enough. There's another note that's very interesting. He says, verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Well, one of the things that happened is that people would suddenly use the temple as a shortcut. Simply to get from one side to the other, it was faster than going around. It was forbidden, but they had allowed it. So now this place, called the Court of the Gentiles, which is meant for the nations to come and pray, was impossible for people to enter and pray. The smell of these animals, the sound of them being bartered and sold, the sound of coins, and, and the, the constant debating was so distracting and loud, which led Jesus to say this, verse 17, as he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What does that mean? Jesus is the prophet and he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. I want you to listen, just, just listen to what Isaiah says. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, 
to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This place was the place of the court of the Gentiles. This place was for all people to draw near to the Lord. And I believe what infuriated Christ the most was the barriers that the Jewish leaders had put between other nations and other people and God. They not only were desecrating the temple, diminishing the glory of God, but they had disregard for the Gentiles. And here's why. The Jews hoped because they hated the Gentiles. The Jews hoped the Messiah would cleanse the temple of the Gentiles, but Jesus cleansed it for the Gentiles. Jesus Christ responds with an attribute that he possessed, an attribute of God, which we should thank him for, called wrath. We perhaps don't often praise God for that attribute, but we should. Wayne Grudem speaks of this attribute and his systematic theology and says it simply is, an intense hatred of all sin. And Jesus, whose eyes can only see and behold what should be, and then when he sees what shouldn't be, is going to respond only as he can with this wrath, responds. Grudem says, it is helpful for us to ask what God would be like if he were a God that did not hate sin. He would be either a God who delighted in sin or at least one not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship for sin is hateful and it is worthy of being hated. Jesus was perfect in his righteous indignation. When we see sin and we have righteous indignation, we too should respond, but we have to be careful because we don't have the purity of Christ's righteousness. He never sinned in his wrath. We can. We can sin in hating the sin and hating the sinner. We can sin in thinking of ourselves better than we ought and demonstrating the self-righteousness which consumes so many of us. Jesus responds with wrath and it's shocking. Imagine the scene. Imagine all of the animals leaving all of the coin exchangers leaving, all the things that they're saying as they leave, Jesus single-handedly cleansed the temple. He drove them out. What was the response? The response of the religious leaders, because the crowds were astonished at his teaching, were to plot to kill him, and they would get their way. Not long from that moment, Jesus would be crucified. There in John 2, when he had created the cat of nine tails, the whip, 
The whip would now be placed on his back. He who showed the holy wrath of God against the desecration, against the diminishing of God's glory, against the disregard, disregarding the other nations. Jesus would now be the one to receive the wrath. That's why before the throne of God is so powerful to sing. He would receive the righteous indignation, the righteous wrath of his father as he became sin for us because he was thirsty for our salvation. He would be put on the tree and crucified and killed because that was the only way that he could secure a place for his people to live in eternity in that perfect temple. The temple was far greater than you and I can imagine in terms of its vastness. The New Testament goes on to say something more about temples, though, and it's really interesting. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, that we who are in Christ, we are his temple and that God's spirit lives in us. Sometimes people say things like this. What do you think Christ would say to the church if he came back today? Well, I want to clarify something. He's here. His spirit is living in all who are his people. We don't really have to wonder what he would say. That same penetrating look that Jesus gave at that temple in the court of the Gentiles is the same penetrating work that the spirit of God does in all of our lives. And when we are in need of cleansing, because we have desecrated the holiness of God in the casual way we think about Jesus in worship, when we have desecrated his glory by making it all about us, our favorites, our preferences, when we have desecrated it by thinking about our own glory and the delight that we have in being praised by man, even if it means demonstrating false humility, he comes to cleanse it. Praise God for that grace. When we, as a church, disregard other peoples, other nations, and put up barriers, known or unknown, we need to repent. We don't have eyes to see all that we need to repent of, but the Lord does. The same God has the ability to see into each of us who have the spirit living in us, who are his temple and show us the things that don't please the Lord. And what's amazing and Brent set this so up so well in our confession is that we never have to fear being rejected by God. Yet this side of heaven, when those things enter into us and consume us, when there is desecration of his glory happening in our lives, when there is a diminishing of God's glory, God's glory in our lives, when there is the disregard of any people in our lives, he will speak. You don't have to wonder what he might say. He says plenty here. And with the illuminating work of the spirit, he can see the parts of you and the parts of me that I could never see. And what's amazing is that the gospel 
gives us the hope that even when the ugliest parts of us are revealed, when we are ashamed of what we see and what we've been hiding, when we see the hypocrisy that we've blamed others for is also true in our life, there we meet the mercy of God once again. The mercy of God spoke of in Lamentations 3. The mercy of God spoke of in Revelation. The mercy of God spoke of in our identity in Christ. You see, left to myself, I'm going to desecrate the glory of God. Left to myself, I am going to diminish that glory. Left to myself, I'm going to disregard people who need to hear about Christ. Left to myself, I have nothing but friends in Christ. What the Father sees is Jesus' righteousness. What the Father sees is that covering that was cost at his son's own blood. What Jesus sees, what Jesus gives us and the Father sees is his life. And we have union with him. And that's the good news. One of the greatest barriers that people experience in coming to Christ is the hypocrisy that they see in those who profess faith in Christ. And the sin that Jesus was most ruthly attacking in this moment, and you'll see it as Robbie preaches from the fig tree, is that that looks like something, but it isn't. And if you think you are beyond that temptation, friend, you've drifted a long way away from the truth. Between now and the day we go to heaven, or the day Christ returns, you and I are going to fight that battle because we are fickle. And when we see again and again the good news of Christ about what it means to be secure in him, the radiance of Jesus shines. So that when someone might accuse you of being a hypocrite, you could look at them and say, I know. And that's why my savior had to die. I'm sorry that you see that in me because I want you to see him in me. And he came to save a sinner such as me. Jesus takes the glory of the Father, his own glory and the glory of the Spirit seriously. That's why his wrath is on display. The grace in this passage is his wrath because it warns us of what we need most. And that is our life in him. Father in heaven, we rejoice for all who are in Christ are secure. We rejoice, Holy Spirit, that even today you will show us things that do not please you. And you will give us the grace necessary to stand, to own, to live out this one perfect identity. And Lord, as we sing in closing today, 
I would just simply ask that we would be present with the words rolling off our tongue that are so true. And then from what we sing, you would press the security deeper into us where we could actually sense the cleansing work, the driving out of the things in us that do not bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.